We all want to be part of a sweeping story, a great movement. Um, we call that, in recent years, we've called that a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is a story that gives meaning to all of life. It's a grand overarching story that gives meaning to everyday existence. For example, at the Louisiana Purchase, Thomas Jefferson, the president, commissioned William Clark and Meriwether Lewis to go on an incredible expedition to the West Coast. They went and came back with incredible reports. And out of that came the term manifest destiny. That many people in America said that it is ordained that there will be one nation from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Manifest destiny. In 1917, when the United States entered World War I, and we sent over hundreds of thousands of soldiers called doughboys, and we sang a song that said over there, over there, you know, before beware that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, and it won't be over there until we have completed our mission. So, but the term that we used, the U.S. used, was echoed or spoken by the president at that time, Woodrow Wilson, that said, we are going to make the world safe for democracy. In other words, kind of a big story, a big movement. And then in 1961, when we were, we thought far behind the Soviet Union in the space race, our president had only been in office for a matter of four months, stood before the combined House and Senate, and he said this, I am proposing a significant space exploration program. He says, there's a battle going on between freedom represented by the United States and tyranny represented by the Soviet Union. We need to make an impact on the minds of men everywhere who are determining which road they shall take. And so he said in 1961, May, he says, my goal is for this nation to have a man on the moon by calendar year 1970. A big story. And I mean, he said, he's dreaming not going to happen. But in the aftermath of that, names like John Glenn and Alan Shepard and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became everyday terms in American life and kind of like some of our heroes. And in the summer of 1969, I was in the ninth grade sitting with my granddaddy in his den. And I watched Neil Armstrong take one step on the moon and say, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And we had put a man on the moon. It was celebrated. It was celebrated. And so we come to today, 2020. And there's a book written by one of my favorite writers, a man named Rouse Douthat, who writes for the New York Times, entitled The Decadent Society. And in, in that book, um, Douthat has a very grim statement to make about America. And this is before the COVID experience, which even made it much more difficult. But he said this about us today. He said, we are running out of steam. We're living through a period of profound, he says, exhaustion in the cultural, political, and economic life of the modern West. We're inventing less. We're having fewer kids. We're recycling old culture instead of creating new stuff. We're getting stuck in mostly dead political vernaculars and narcotizing ourselves with drugs, 
pornography, tweets, and superhero movies. He says we're involved in economic stagnation, institutional decay, and cultural and intellectual exhaustion at a high level of material prosperity. We're going, he says, in circles. I'm not saying you have to agree with that, but, but that, that represents one person's thought. But what I want to say is this, church. Hear me, hear me. Please hear me. We should never, ever not realize that we are, if you're a believer in Jesus, we are part of a great meta-narrative called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is that which is, represents Jesus and it goes to the ends of the earth. And we long for the coming of the Lord and we live with passion and purpose because we're called unto him. So, so in, the, in the days of Micah, the, the, the Lord said through the prophet Micah, eight centuries before Jesus, contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea in the Old Testament, he said, because of your idolatry, you've made God in your own image and you fashion a God out of wood or stone or gold that represents your inclinations. And because of that, you have invariably prostituted the true worship of God and you have mistreated people. And, and because of that, I'm going to scatter you. But there's a, a, a day is coming when I will gather a remnant back together and they will sit in, with, with ease and joy and prosperity under a shepherd king. He said, scattered, but you're going to be gathered. And so the scattering, gathering process, the promise is given in Micah chapter 5, where he says in verse 2 that, 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 that this shepherd king, this one who's anxious, of ancient days, is going to come from a backwater village called Bethlehem. And, and this great shepherd king will come forth, and it says in verse 4 of Micah 5, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace and, and so th 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 he said that's the promise that's the shepherd king that's coming so they live with anticipation as they look forward to the shepherding king we we live on the other side of the revelation of that shepherd king, his perfect life, his death upon the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, the poured out Holy Spirit, the completion of the, the Bible. And, and so, so we should say with great fervor and joy and enthusiasm, we are dwelling secure and he is our peace. We live under the reign of Messiah King, whose name is Jesus. Therefore, we're part of a great sweeping narrative called the kingdom of God. And so the Heidelberg Catechism says, I think with great insight that when we pray thy kingdom come in the Lord's prayer, we are praying this, O Lord, may we more and more submit to your word. May you protect and grow your church and may you destroy the devices and the stratagems of the devil and every obstacle raised against the authority of your word until Jesus becomes our all in all. Thy kingdom come. So, so, so the, the good news, the very good news is we're part of something that's magnificent and glorious called the kingdom of God. And we saw last week in Micah chapter 6, that God says, you need to remember what I've done for you. He says, verse 3, how have I wearied you, my people? How have I wearied you? And he says, don't you remember this? He says, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He says, I redeemed you from the house of slavery. 
I only brought you up, but I, I redeemed you. And, and he says, thirdly, I've given you leaders in Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And I want you to remember, he says, I want you to remember that, that what I've done for you, that, that, that I turned blessing or curses into blessings. I want you to remember that I dried up the Jordan River and I brought you safely across into the land of promise. He says, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord, but remember these things. And then we come to this passage, which is the key passage, I think, of this book. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. It says, what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord? And, and how and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Yes. Verse 7. But will the Lord Jehovah be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give the firstborn of my transgression for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And, and, and he says, you know, you come from the proper sacrifice, but then he just piles it up with hyperbole. He says, should I come with thousands of rams? 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I do like the neighboring nations in, in a horrible thing? Should, should I give the firstborn the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And of course, no, no, no. So he's saying that, that, that people were coming to the Lord and using the sacrificial system as a bargaining chip instead of saying, no, the sacrificial system represents my heart. The sacrificial system is that which is instituted to cause me to look forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who by his one act on the cross would take away the sin of the world. So Micah says, you must remember. And, and as you remember these things, you should do, you should live them out. And he says in verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If you study Old Testament commentaries, many people say that this passage encapsulates the heart of God for his people more than any other passage in the Old Testament. I mean, that's a significant statement. That's a huge statement. And, and, and so we look at this passage, we're going to go through it very slowly. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. The word good here means beneficial. It means uh, that which brings hope to your life. It means that which produces human flourishing. See, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God in his majesty is good, and he loves his people. So when, when the pastor says, he has told you, man, this is good. This is good, and because it's good, God requires it from you because he loves you. He is good. I love the quote by C.S. Lewis that you'll see from your Christianity. He says, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. And Luz goes on and says, it's just the height of folly to say, God, make me happy apart from yourself because God is the author of happiness. God is the author of joy. So if we're going to be happy and joyful, and if we're going to have good and beneficial things in our lives, then we will walk in obedience. It's good. 
is good, and this, the Lord requires this of you. So today we're talking about justice. Justice. Let me give you a brief definition of justice. Justice is the fulfilling of mutual obligations in a manner consistent with God's revelation. It's the fulfillment of mutual obligations in accordance with Scripture and God's character because men and women are made in the image of God. We're called to pursue justice. So I'm, I'm going to talk today about that concept of justice. Let me give you four points. Number one is this. Justice flows from a heart of worship. If I am to be a person who pursues justice, I must be a person who worships, who's in the context of people who are pursuing Christ, who reads the Bible, says, God, teach me as I read the Bible. Come, Holy Spirit. The most important thing I want to say today is this. Justice flows from a heart of worship. If my worship doesn't push me to justice, to pursuing equity, to treating people with dignity, I'm not worshiping. Now, Deuteronomy is a book in the Old Testament given for the people of Israel. And Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 and 18, says, says this. You'll see the verse, okay. You read as I read. You shall not pervert the justice Due to the sojourner or the stranger, the non-Israeli person among you, the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. That means her cloak, the last thing she would have. You You don't take that as a pledge against the loan. But you shall remember that the Lord that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Don't you see verse 18? You must remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out. And so I I look at this and I say, remembering is part of worship. So if if I'm to be a person of justice, I must remember that when I was dead in my sins, when I was dead in my transgressions, God made me alive in Jesus. And, And and so you go through this whole chapter, and really from, from verse 5 on, it can, be, it can be, the subtitle could be, treat people with dignity who are made in the image of God because you've been redeemed. He says, he says at the end of the chapter, he says that, that it shall be for the sojourn, the fatherless, and the widow, again, verse 22, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. So worship flows from remembering. And so he goes to this passage, just an incredible passage. He says, when you, when you walk among each other, verse 5 or 6, he says, don't take a meal or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking the life of, life of another. He said, what does that mean? Well, a millstone, you, you ground wheat and you're able to eat it. And if you take somebody's millstone, which I think is an overstatement because they weigh several hundred pounds, they, they could grind wheat and they couldn't eat. He says, you don't do that. You protect the dignity of people. He says, and when you go to collect some money that people owe you, you don't go in their house. You stand outside of their house to show that you honor and respect them. 
You treat people with dignity. You shall stand outside. And, and if, if it is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his robe. Take his robe and say, I've got to have this. That's all he has. You don't sleep in his robe. He says, you shall restore him his robe as the sun sets that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You walk before God. You treat people with dignity. And he says this, that, that, that when somebody works for you, you pay him at the end of the day. You don't say, hey, I'll come back next week. I can't get to the bank. You, know, you pay him that day because he needs that. You treat him with dignity. And then he says, when, when, you, when you collect the wheat, don't get it all. You leave some for people who don't have farms and who are struggling financially. And you let them come and you let them work and gather wheat and you protect their dignity. Or when you're collecting olives or grapes right here in this passage, you don't get them all. You leave some for the poor people to come behind so they can collect them and live and you protect their dignity. So I read this and I say, you know, justice flows from worship. The Lord was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. You see, you worship you love, then you love your neighbor as you love yourself. James is, to me, a companion book to the Minor Prophets in the New Testament. And, and James says this, he says, brothers, be doers of the word, verse 22, chapter 1, and not hearers only deceiving yourself. He says, for if anyone looks at his face in a mirror and looks at it intently and then walks away without changing anything, he says, it does him no good. He says, that's what happens. We come to the word and we read it and we study it and we think and we ponder it and we don't take it in and we don't make changes. We don't go further into the light. It does us no good. And then he says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart and his religion is worthless. Whoa. He says, yeah, if you, if, if you just castigate people and you lie about people and you slander people, your religion is worthless. And he says, this religion that God our Father considers as pure and undefiled is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, let me just say, in the Old Testament, most people feel that an orphan was represented by someone who'd lost either one or both parents. So widows and orphans. And they're distressed. So if you're in a Bible study and somebody says, you know, what's the mark of a mature Christian? And people say, well, you know, the Bible says don't love the world. So, you know, yeah, you say you're not worldly. But we should also say, you know, religion that really is honoring to the Lord looks after widows and orphans in their distress. See, true justice flows from a heart of worship. We should be compelled. The word should compel me to love people. Point two, the father delights in justice. 
delights. That's a strong word. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9 says this, don't let the wise man boast of his wisdom or the mighty man boast of his might. Or don't let the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the God who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. You hear that? Delights. The Father delights in justice. And if the Father delights in it, his people should. Um, in a passage, you know, we, hear, we hear Matthew 25 probably a lot if you've been a Christian very long, and it's easy for it to kind of, kind of slip by you. But in Matthew 25, Jesus looks at a group of people and says, you know, depart from me. And they say, they say, why? He said, well, I was sick and you didn't visit me. I was in prison you didn't come to me. I was without clothes you didn't clothe me. I was hungry you didn't feed me. I said, Really? And he says, another group, yeah, come on in. He says, how, why? Well, I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was without clothes and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. And they said, Lord, I said, Lord, I'm not doubting your word, but when were you sick? Or when were you in prison? Or when were you without clothes? Or when were you destitute? Jesus says, when you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. And it's just an amazing statement that when I care for people who are made in the image of God, I am somehow mystically touching the body of Christ. And so that passage helped compel a nun from Yugoslavia that we know as Mother Teresa to start Numerous works, especially in Calcutta, for the Sisters of Charity. As you go through the streets of that city of now, 17 million people, and she would, and her co-workers would pick up people that were being left to die, in some cases being eaten by rats, and take them into a converted Hindu temple and bathe them and let them die with dignity. And she said, I do this because when I touch other people, I am touching the body of Jesus. And there's a man named Malcolm Muggeridge who was so moved by her story and her statement and why she said they wrote a wonderful little book that's well worth reading called Something Beautiful for God. You see, if the Father delights in it, I should delight in it. You should delight in it. The third thing about justice is that the Messiah brings justice the Messiah brings justice. That's part of his messianic coming. In Isaiah chapter 42, it says this, that it says, behold my servant in whom my soul delights, my chosen one, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And how, how will he do it? Well, he'll, he won't cry out. He won't become arrogant or pushy. He'll uh, uh, a bruised reed he will not break, but verse 4, and he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So, so Jesus brings justice by being the one who died on the cross for our sin. Absolutely. 
The righteousness of God is revealed, Romans 3 says, by the one who is just and justifies the guilty. That's us. But there's also a sense here that when, when God works in our heart and he saves us, that we become people who are advocates for justice or treating people who are made in the image of God with dignity and respect and calling out and protecting those who are oppressed. Because it says in chapter 1, it says that, it says, God says in verse 15 of Isaiah, it says, when you spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And it says, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Seek justice. We have a little confessional statement called the Baptist Faith and Message that we hold to. Article 15 is on the Christian and the social order. And Article 15 says that Christians are under obligation. So we start. We're under obligation to make the will and the rule of Christ supreme in our lives and in our culture. Therefore, we should work for the oppressed. We should defend life from conception till natural death. We should stand against the abuse of people and stand against pornography and so forth and so on. But we're under obligation. We've been charged to do this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Fourthly, judgment came in the book of Micah because of idol worship that led to the mistreatment of people. You see, in chapter 3, it says this. He says, I, I'm going to go to the leaders and speak to them. And he says, you heads of Jacob, you leaders, you entrepreneurs with the ability to do things. You people, the head of different disciplines. You priests, you prophets. He says, I'm, I'm, you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You hate the evil and you, oh, excuse me, you, you hate the good and love the evil. You tear the skin from off of my people and their flesh from off of their bones. See, you make God in your own image, and so you have a user-friendly God, and this user-friendly God doesn't require of you anything. And so because of the stubbornness of your heart, so many people just abuse other people. It says here that they, they, they seize the homes of widows, and they seize the inheritance of orphans, for heaven's sake. And they took the passerbyer, and they mistreated the guys who were just passing through the land because they could It says in verse 9 of chapter 3, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob. Once again, you leaders, you rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. You have built Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. <laughs> you detest justice. So, you make God in your own image, user-friendly God who winks at what you want to do. And you end up, in many, many cases, mistreating people, even orphans, 
even widows, even the sojourner among you, the very people you're supposed to defend. Hear me. Many of you have positions of authority in the marketplace, on your campuses, in your homes, in your neighborhoods. You should understand you're under obligation to advocate for people who cannot protect themselves in many cases. The marginalized, the widows, the orphans, the sojourners. That's our calling. That's what we're, we're supposed to do. Um, in 1984, I'll give you a few examples, so hang in there with me. 1984, um, Governor Mario Cuomo, a very gifted governor from New York, gave the keynote address of the Democrat National Convention. Many people held it as one of the finest addresses given in political theater for decades. A few months later, he went to Notre Dame in Indiana, a Catholic school. Mario Como, a professing Catholic, said he's a practicing Catholic, uh, gave an address about uh, politics, basically. And in that address, he made this argument that has become kind of the line for many people. Uh, it was held as a great speech. I think it was, quite honestly, an abomination. He said this, he said, I am a practicing Roman Catholic and I know my church is against abortion and for that we are so thankful for our Catholic friends. I'm saying that, not Como. He said, I'm a practicing Roman Catholic and he said, as a practicing Roman Catholic, I am personally opposed to abortion, but I have to defend it because it is the law of the land. And that's been the mantra of many, many people since then. Well, I'm opposed to it, but it's the law of the land. Uh, see, I, I'm telling you that we are to advocate for a law that is higher than the law of the land. Now, we don't abrogate the law of the land. We work to change things. But we are under a moral law that's higher than a law passed by an assembly in Albany or Washington or Columbia or Atlanta. And so many people said that since then. And see, I step back and I say, well, when you look at their lives, they're not personally opposed to abortion. They've never done anything to stem that flood. They've never given to local pregnancy centers. They've never taken people in their home in a difficult situation. They just give lip service. And so I think those people are liars in many cases. There was a bill, I mentioned this before, that was presented by Senator Ben Sass called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act that said, just said that if, if a child is aborted and that, and obviously very late term abortion, and that child survives, then that child should be treated as a human being and rushed to the hospital and given every chance to live. That did not pass the Senate. So you can't say I'm personally opposed to abortion, but it's a lot. if you can't vote for that, I, I, you have no credibility with me. People say, well, it, it, that doesn't happen very often, but it, listen, it does happen. It does happen. And justice requires us to say we treat life with dignity. We had a horrible situation in Minneapolis just a few months ago where a man was really horribly treated and died because of abuse at the hands of the police. And I read many articles afterwards, all types of articles, and some of the articles said, yeah, this, this was bad. Nobody said there was anything, but this is horrible. But some said, we shouldn't overreact because this rarely happens. And I said, hey, 
Don't ever say it rarely happens. It happened. And as people of justice, we should say we advocate for strict accountability with those who are, I believe the vast majority of people in law enforcement are honorable men and women, but, but let's work hard to, to, to have an accountability where these type of things will happen with less frequency because we're people of justice. Do you see, you see what I'm saying? Two years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention was in an uproar because there was an article released in the Houston newspaper about abuse of women and children in the Southern Baptist Convention. And we'd been hearing about the abuse in the Catholic Church for years, and it took us all by a horrible shock. And, 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 and one of our leaders who was involved in downgrading women had to resign, a man that I respected. And we found out that people would abuse children and just go to another church, and there was no data bank to control that. We've tried to establish that now. And I heard people say, well, you know, there are 33. 5,000 Southern Baptist churches, 15 million people. This only happened in a few churches. I said, don't say that. It happened. And we've got to be people who pursue justice. And so we had a meeting, and we just told the whole church what we did here to protect children and women at our church and at our school, Palmetto Christian Academy. And we want to do it right. We are to pursue justice. One of my favorite Prime Minister's was a guy named Edmund Burke, England, 1800s. And he said this, the only necessary thing for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. It's a great quote. You're called to be advocates. Now, as I walked through this and dealt with this text, I've just thought, how do we make application? How do we make application? This is my application. We must be people who think and, and pray globally and get involved and pray locally. Example, right now in our world, 2020, November, and I've mentioned this a few times, there's a group of people in China called the Uyghurs. Uh, they're non-Han Chinese, they're Muslims, they're Turk Muslims. And, and the Uyghurs, right now, 1.5 to 2 million of them are in re-education camps in China. That's been confirmed by numerous sources. In these re-education camps, there are forced sterilizations, there are abortions, there's organ harvesting, and there's genocide going on in our day. It is heavy on my heart. So in your weekly prayer sheet, get out a little Kinex card and make a weekly prayer sheet, you should be praying for some issue in the world that, that, that you are praying for and you may want to write your congressman about and you may want to, send to write a letter to Secretary of State Pompeo who has spoken out repeatedly for the Uyghurs. Thank you, Secretary of State Pompeo. And, and, and you need to, 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 to do that. You need to, or, or you can think about the Rohingya of, of, of Burma, 700,000 to 800,000 people, Muslims, who've been pushed out of, of Burma into Bangladesh. Their villages have been leveled. The women have been horribly abused, horribly abused. And it's, it's happening right now. Or you may want to think about the Syrian crisis where one 0.5 million people in a nation of 8 million people have been dispossessed. It's amazing. 
or, or the Boko Haram in northern Nigeria that are, 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 are kidnapping young girls and selling them into sexual slavery. I mean, this is going on right now. And we should cry out in our prayer closet, God, bring justice to the earth. And then, then we need to be involved locally. So I was mulling over this and thinking about it. And Friday, Friday I was uh, walking the halls and I, somebody called my name and I turned around there stood a man and a woman who were dear to me there in our church. And this couple uh, just a few weeks ago very unexpectedly lost their daughter. She died in her sleep, the prime of her life. And uh, like four weeks ago, and I saw him a man-to-man Friday morning. The two previous Fridays, I've been back to church. They called my name and I turned around. They were holding Operation Christmas Child boxes. And they said, where, where do we put the boxes? And I thought, I was trying not to get emotive because I thought, you, you just walked through something that is unspeakably difficult. And you're doing Operation Christmas Child for children around the world. It's amazing. And uh, they were getting teary-eyed, and they said, yeah, we, the husband said, we, we're here today. We want to bring it in because we know that um, Angel Tree is going to happen this weekend. And we're going to be in Greenville for a Thanksgiving time with a part of our family, and we won't be here Sunday. So we want to make sure that we got a couple of children before they were all gone on Sunday. We have 189 children whose parents are prisoners. Mom or dad or both are prisoners, and they won't have a Christmas unless we buy them some gifts and take it to them in the name of Jesus. And so we have 189 of those kids outside the sanctuary and outside the worship center. We were afraid they would all be gone. And I, I, I was deeply moved. I thought, no one, no one. No one would expect you guys to be here and do this three, three and a half weeks after saying goodbye to your daughter. Thank the Lord she's in heaven, but saying goodbye in this life to your daughter. And I, and I thought, you know, we hear a lot about social justice warriors. Let me tell you something. They are justice warriors in the name of Jesus. I, I think of people who who every week will go to a prison and, and take food to prisoners and do a Bible study and sometimes go to death row and they'll love these men and they're justice warriors. And I think of old ladies in our church who really can't get around and they're confined because of this COVID thing that's going on and, and yet they're in a correspondence course with prisoners all over the country, hundreds of them from our church. And they'll give them Bible studies and send them tracts and get to know them as friends and pray for them. And they're justice warriors. Not the people marching in the street and throwing things, but the people that are doing it in the name of Jesus. I think of people that take in foster kids and love them in the home. And they're justice warriors. I think of people in the families counseling where they care for families that are kind of dealing with crisis and love them. I think of people working the, with the Low Country Pregnancy Center and they're justice warriors. 
people that feed those who are hungry and help the homeless, they're justice warriors. And I thank God for them, and I'm humbled to know them. And I'm called to do that, and so are you. And so I need to think globally and pray globally and think locally and pray locally and do something with this angel tree or Christmas child or taking care of, just helping those. Because God has called me to pursue this in the name of Jesus. It's good for me. It's good for your soul. It honors the Savior. And it flows from a heart of worship. Lord, I pray we'd be people who pursue justice. I pray we, we would do that which is honoring to you. And Father, help us to love and care for those who are marginalized. The prisoner, the widow, the oppressed, the orphan, the poor, the sojourner in our midst, people that are down or hurting. Make us justice-minded people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.